so I'm hyperventilating a little bit. If I fall over, pick me up because I've got some things to say. Though we adore men individually, we agree that as a group they're rather stupid. That men are essential for procreation, but when it comes to pleasure, unnecessary. Dinosaurs eat men. Woman inherits the earth. Safety lights are for dudes. Safety lights are for dudes. <laughs> well, put some skates on. Be your own hero. Things in the air, Kristen. Lord, please give it up for the dazzling vocal stylings of Miss Skimmerly. Hello, everybody, and welcome to Citizen Dame, uh, the podcast where we're all really tired and just always tired. Like this life is exhausting. So I don't know tired. Why. So, so uh, <laughs> I am Lauren Humphreys Brooks, and with me, as always, is Karen Peterson. Hello. And we have lots of exciting things to get to today, but before we get to them, we want to remind everybody that uh, we do depend upon Patreon dollars, so if you're not yet a patron for us, please, please, please consider joining. You know, you can join at the lowest tier, which is just a dollar a month, um, and anything above that, and you get access to all kinds of really exciting things, including buttons and bonus episodes, and we will be recording some more bonus episodes uh, very shortly, so there's good stuff coming just consider joining us um so today i think that we're gonna start with uh karen you got to go to d23 i sure did and i still can't (laughs) believe i got to go to that because it's basically the comic-con of disney and they do they only do it every two years it's where they get the opportunity to show things that they're bringing out that are coming up soon um, basically over the next two years, they do retrospectives and it's just really, it's just a really interesting thing. This is my first time ever attending D23 and I was not sure what to expect. I'd heard that it's a lot like Comic-Con. I'm guessing that's from people who've not actually attended Comic-Con because (laughs) one thing I found at D23 was that it's, um, it's just easier to navigate the, I mean, the convention center in Anaheim is a lot smaller than the one in San Diego, and there's also about 80,000 fewer people mm. <laughs> that are just inside the building at any given time. But also just, like, walking the show floor and everything, it just, it was, it felt more spread out. It felt like you had room to actually breathe. We weren't constantly being run over by people, like, happens in San Diego. But I, I went to a couple of panels while I was there, I Disney asked me to come to the Disney Plus and Disney Studios panels and cover those, so I did. And uh, so the Disney Plus one was on Friday, and their whole thing was just laying out what to expect from this new Disney Plus streaming service that's launching in November. And so they showed us, you know, what's going to be there when it launches, but then they also rolled out some of the things that are going to be happening over the next couple of years as they really get going. And so they talked a lot about uh, Mandalorian and they showed footage for that. They announced that there's going to be another, another Star Wars series, which is, um, you know, in Rogue One, Cassian Andor's character, which was played by Diego Luna. Yeah. Uh, He and 
the droid, K2SO, who's voiced by Alan Tudyk, they're getting their own prequel show that Kathleen Kennedy described as like a spy series. So we're not really sure what's going to happen there. It's still being written, but it just sounded like fun. And so I'm, I'm all for, you know, I'm not necessarily excited for like the prequel movies like Solo and there was supposed to be that, um, that Boba Fett one and things like that. Yeah. But if they're going to do these spin-off prequel like TV shows, I think that could be really interesting. So I'm down with it. And speaking of which, they also officially have announced that there will be an Obi-Wan Kenobi show too and Ewan McGregor will be doing it and um but yeah so that was fun I mean you know me I love Star Wars I'm obsessed with Star Wars so (laughs) that's always gonna get me but Disney Plus is just gonna do all kinds of of crazy stuff I mean they've got it's basically it's like it's not even a network it's an entire cable company because they're gonna have reality shows and competition shows and kids programming and original movies and you know drama series and comedies I mean it's it's everything you could imagine anything that you get on TV now it's just going to be the Disney-fied version of it <laughs> and it's going to be crazy uh, one show that's coming up and they actually did a separate side panel for this and you bet I was there <laughs> it was a show that <laughs> <laughs> Lauren's gonna steal my password just to watch it. Uh, I know the world what this ac- is, yeah. <laughs> the world according to Jeff Goldblum. Mm. So Yeah. Oh man. <laughs> so I went to this panel where it was just him talking about he, there was a, a a moderator, so it wasn't just him talking to the crowd, but but yeah, so they were walking through what this show actually is and and he talked a lot about being inspired by travel shows. He had done uh, Nat Geo's death. Uh, what's the what's the show? Not Destination. Uh, I don't remember. Anyway, he had been on an episode of a Nat Geo show a few years ago, and and that really kind of inspired him and gave him the bug. And so when this idea was pitched to him, he just was really excited and jumped on board right away. And so basically. This isn't really just a travel show. This is more of like learning about stuff. So what'll with happen? Jeff is, yes, with Jeff Goldblum, and it's <laughs> great. He was talking about how like he'll just start talking to the camera and he'll say things that are totally not true, but it's just based on like his understanding of the world. And he's like, "I'm not really making <laughs> it up, but I don't know what's right all the time." Wow. So yeah, so it's gonna be great. There's gonna be like there's an episode about sneakers, and for that episode, he'll go to this convention that's like a sneaker convention, and talk to people and about their shoes, and like he finds these twenty five thousand dollar pair of sneakers, you know, and so he gets into like why people it's not like how they're made it's why people are obsessed with them, you know, that kind of thing. Hmm. So it's like oh, this is a completely different take on some of those types of shows that give you this information and he he doesn't like know any of these people beforehand this is just folks that he gets connected with through the show and then he goes and does it and he says that he traveled and saw more of this country than he ever has before and it's just gonna be a lot of fun i think there are 10 or 12 episodes coming and uh so he's hoping to do another season he apparently gives someone a tattoo 
I would totally do that, by the way. Just like Jeff Goldblum wanted to give me a tattoo, I'd be like, yes, you may. If Jeff Goldblum was giving tattoos, I would say yes. Yes, absolutely. (laughs) Um, Apparently in Philadelphia, they have a Jeff Goldblum day. And so he was there. And (laughs) this particular tattoo parlor gives tattoos, free tattoos of Jeff Goldblum on Jeff Goldblum day. So he helped out. (laughs) I'm like, how could you not love that? You know? Oh, my God. So, that, yeah. That being said, that be, you, do you have tattoos at all? I don't have any. No. Okay, so I was going to say, that being said, having had tattoos done, I'm not certain whether I want someone who's never done a tattoo to give me one. Yeah, that like, seems bad. Yeah, it seems like a really bad idea. Like, I, I wouldn't, but he could, like, draw a line on me or something like that. You know, that would be fine. But beyond that, I'd be like, this is making me very, very nervous. Yeah, he did eventually say that he just, he didn't give a full tattoo. It was just a few strokes with the with the pen, but yeah. Oh my God. <laughs> but still, he was doing it. It's Jeff Goldblum oh holding a vibrating needle. <laughs> That's terrifying. <laughs> and also kind of sexy. Right? Um... <laughs> but yeah, uh, that was fun. He's, he's just delightful. He's so funny. And like the whole time I was standing there watching this uh, panel, because that was... I, I had to stand up because it was standing room only by the time I got in there. And uh, I just kept thinking, oh, man, I wish Lauren was here. <laughs> <laughs> you would have had so much fun. So, yeah. Oh, my God. Someday I'm going to meet that man. And I'm just going to be like, look, you, you just need to know what an effect <laughs> you have had on my life. Seriously. Yeah. And yeah. I think he would appreciate that. I think he would be like, well, you're welcome. <laughs> yes. I, I really think that's true. <laughs> he also invited everybody to come and see him perform jazz in the valley and he said that he loves to take pictures with people so lauren i mean i've got a couch come stay with me i yeah i've gotta <laughs> gotta get into the same room with him and yeah. and just be like yes i will go up to jeff goldblum and say jeff goldblum you're everything it's it's a pretty <laughs> magical experience now that i have been there i can say that yeah so that, but yeah. But yeah, so that was that was the Disney Plus stuff, and then um, they did do the Disney panel or Disney Studios panel on Saturday, and that was also really big. That actually ran long because um, there's so much stuff coming, and um, they they showed a lot of footage from Frozen Two. I'm really surprised with all the stuff that's happening with Frozen Two because it's like it was one of the biggest animated movies when it came out, and it won Oscars. And yet they're acting like nobody cares about the sequel. It's really interesting because I've seen they've released a couple of trailers now mm-hmm. at this this presentation at D23. They showed an entire full song finished like the way it's going to be in the movie, Elsa's song. And then they had Idina Menzel, Kristen Bell, Jonathan Groff and Josh Gad all come out on stage and sing another song that they sing together. And they showed some additional stuff about this, this movie. And then I'm going to a thing next week at Disney that's all about some of the artwork and things. So it's really interesting how much they're pushing this. And I, I, don't, I don't know why. It's almost like they just feel like they have to convince people. So it's, it's weird. I don't know. I kind of wonder whether there's still there's a little 
nervousness at Disney surrounding sequels because so often, at least in the early in the earlier days, whenever there was a sequel, it would basically be a direct video release. True. It's like The Little Mermaid Two or um, The Return of Jafar and stuff like that. So I wonder if there's a, still a little bit of leave over from that because you're right, Frozen was massively popular mm-hmm. uh, to even to the point that we all kind of got sick of it. Yeah, exactly. So it's it's interesting. Um, cause I mean, they've had other, like, well, I guess Disney Studios hasn't. Yeah. It's mostly been Pixar sequels that have done so well. So that's a good point. Hmm. I don't know, but it looks really beautiful. So I'm, I don't know. I'm excited for it. So they're, they're winning me over, but, um, they, let's see, I'm trying to think what else they announced at the Disney Studios panel that was particularly of note they did show the rise of skywalker uh footage that they released a couple days later and seriously that shot where ray is holding the double-bladed red lightsaber Mm -hmm. that was at the very end of it and i just blurted out not quietly holy shit (laughs) (laughs) and kristen just kind of laughed at me she's sitting next to me (laughs) I'm like, no, that's that's crazy. <laughs> so I want that lightsaber. And so yeah, that was that was really fun. And watching Kristen react when Oscar Isaac came out on stage and like I'm she sure. was fully melting down. It was it was great. And then they, you know, there were a couple of things like they did a whole thing with the Eternals and um, brought out the cast for that. And then they're they're also not only are they going hard for Frozen too, they're also really pushing for Maleficent. Two, um, yeah. Which I'm sorry to say doesn't look very good. And the more I see about it, and the more I see of it, the less good it looks. That's a shame because I actually really liked the first film. I thought that was a of, of all of the attempts to kind of redo Disney villains as you know misunderstood heroes or something like that. That one, I was actually like, yeah, I can definitely see this. This works. Yeah. I've come around on Maleficent. When I first saw it, my feeling on it was very much the same as how I feel about this Joker movie that everyone's freaking out about. Because there are just certain characters that they don't have to have a reason to be evil. They can just be evil. And I think that that is more interesting sometimes. And that's how I felt with Maleficent. I was just like, no, she's just bad. Why can't women just be bad? Why do they have to have been jilted by men or whatever? But I've really come around to that movie. And I, because I think it does so many things so well. And she is really fascinating to watch in that role. So I don't know. I'm hoping I'm wrong. And I'm just, you know, just not. I'm hoping I just am not seeing the full vision, I guess, of what Maleficent's going to be, but it just, well, yeah, I wasn't I wasn't particularly impressed with the footage. I mean, I, I think we do just have to wait and see, but yeah, it also doesn't surprise me if the sequel is not that great, because yeah. uh, it's already kind of, like, like you're saying, it's already kind of an uphill battle with the first one, and I, I do personally think that it worked, mm-hmm. but um, then doing a sequel to it, you're like, okay, well, what more... Or can you do with that story, basically? Right. Um, well, they but, do take it in a new direction. So, so like, we'll, we'll there's, yeah, Michelle Pfeiffer looks amazing because, of course, she does. So, yeah, I mean, that right there is enough to get me to be like, yeah, okay, fine, I'll see it. <laughs> 
Well, and then and meanwhile, they did what they did show images from the Cruella Deville film. Yes, yes, they did. Which I have so many questions about. One of them being this woman's arc ends with her wanting to murder puppies. <laughs> like that is her. Like Maleficent, you can kind of like she is even in the original film. She is a little bit wronged. Like they they don't invite her to the christening. They kind of snub her and all of that. So you can see where you can bend that into another story. Cruella Deville literally wants to kill. Kill, skin, and wear puppies. Yeah. Mm -hmm. How how are you going? I mean, unless they're going to go, like, full anti-hero, like, we totally hate her, but we're fascinated by her. I have no idea what they're going to do with that. (laughs) Well, they definitely are not going to uh, turn her into a hero. I mean, Disney's, like, banking on the fact that everyone knows her as this villain, and I really just... I I really I don't know. I agree with you. I don't know how it's going to work, but I really don't think they're going to try to turn her into sympathetic because regardless of what you do with her backstory, you still know that eventually she goes to the ends of the earth to try to track <laughs> down dogs to wear them. <laughs> There's no coming back from that. It is, it is like, did the dogs wrong her? Like, is just like, ah, oh, she was viciously attacked by evil puppies when she was young. And like, you know, it's very hard to like fix that. It would be like, actually, she's to- it's totally fine. It's like, no, she wants to murder yeah, puppies. Yeah, I am like, excited, though, for the vibe they're going with. Oh, sorry. <laughs> I think my thing just cut out. Sorry, I totally missed the end part of what you said. But um, I think the vibe they're going for here is going to be really interesting because... It's like this that seventies London punk is yeah. is what they're looking at. So that's that's a cool aesthetic. That could be really fun. And then um, Emma Stone wasn't there because they're actually filming the movie now in London, but she recorded this video that they played, and um, it's her just like not in costume or anything. She's just talking. You know, welcome. Thanks for coming out at D twenty three, and I'm really excited for the movie. And she keeps making comments to someone off screen and she keeps getting more and more annoyed by whatever's going on over there. And she's like, would you stop? Would you get out of my eyesight? Would you just leave? And then they finally pan over and it's a Dalmatian. (laughs) (laughs) It was really cute. So, yeah, I don't know. We'll see what happens. But that was basically D23. Well, uh, Definitely, it's, it sounds interesting. I mean, one of the one of the things that a few people talked about, and I talked about on Twitter, was from the people on the outside, is that un, unlike a lot of Comic Con, where you know, which has become more and more corporate dominated, but there is kind of a multiplicity of corporations and yeah, fandoms and stuff like that. This D twenty three really is it's it's a corporate expo. Like it's here's all of this stuff that Disney is coming out with. And so yes. it, it was kind of weird just in watching it and reading it. And on the one hand, I was like, you know, this is very, this is good. There's a lot of good stuff coming out. And I think that it's good that Disney is doing, is obviously doing some good work. The other side of it is like, this does kind of showcase how dominant Disney is and how dominant Disney is going to be with something like D23, like your, uh, or um, uh, D, Disney Plus, sorry. Mm-hmm. Uh you know, like you're saying, that this is basically a television network um, under Disney. And Disney already owns TV networks. I mean, they own ABC. They own, like, they own all kinds of things. They own Marvel. They own Fox. Uh, yeah. Or they own 20th Century Fox. So there's 
there's a little bit of discomfort that is going into that, that on, on the other side of it, on the other side of all of this good stuff, you're like, yeah, but they're also like getting increasingly hegemonic mm-hmm. in their, in their dominance of the entertainment industry. And, and so I don't know, I had very mixed feelings in reading all this, just like, yay, everyone's excited. Oh, this is kind of terrifying. <laughs> it was funny because they actually opened the Disney studios panel with a montage of just like tons of Disney movies from, you know, all of their history and all of which will be available on Disney plus in November. Um, (laughs) They're not sponsoring this podcast, but damn it, they should. I was going to say, but, uh, but no, they opened it with this montage and the very first thing you hear as it's starting is Mufasa saying, Everywhere the light touches is our kingdom. And I was just like, that is the most self-aware like intro that they could possibly have done. Because that's Slash exactly terrifying. Right. <laughs> like they're just like, yeah, fuck it. We own like, you all. <laughs> I mean, I kind of admire that, but you know, we were we were talking in the on the last episode about there's there's something kind of I enjoy the fact that Sony is kind of throwing a monkey wrench into the works a little bit with, with Spider-Man and, and all of that kind of drama, just because I don't think that it's a good thing for Disney to own everything. I agree with that. And I think most people, most people agree with that. Um, I think it's really just that they want Disney to own whatever they want Disney to own and then hands off all the rest. And it's like, yeah, that doesn't, that's not how that works. Yeah, ex- exactly. You can't you can't say like, oh, I like this this thing, but they shouldn't own the other thing because I because of you know I, that's how I feel about it. It's so it's it's a weird kind of conundrum that is going on, and I I mean I don't know. There's nothing much that we can do about it, and Disney's going to continue to to acquire things, um, but we we don't want a single company basically running all of entertainment. No, we definitely don't. Just to go back to your point, though, one thing about D23 that I actually really enjoyed besides everything was um, was just the, the fact that, yes, this is all one company. This is all one big um, corporation. But it was really fun to see how many different different types of fans there are and how many yeah. different different like this is really a company where there's something for everyone and. It's not that I want them to own everything because I definitely don't. And I would like them to not buy any more studios. (laughs) Just like keep what you got and just whatever. But, but yeah, I, I do admire the fact that they're not just like, admire is not really the right word, but I do see that what they do, they're really good at it. And it's not just like, they're not, they're not forcing anybody to buy what they're selling. They're not, hypnotizing people into blind trust because there are a lot of people who love Star Wars and hate Marvel or vice versa or they really just care about Disney princesses or whatever and that's all fine you know they just they do what they do really well and it it just it works for people it works for me I'm I'm a fan but I agree with everything you're saying that this is terrifying how much control they have over this market and the fact that so many decisions from other studios are being made by well how can we compete with Disney not how can yeah. we succeed at what we do well how can we compete with Disney and that is a problem yeah and, and I mean there, 
recently there was a report that um, they were no longer going to loan out certain Fox films to repertory yeah. theaters. And so, and one of like one of the ones that kind of hit home to me was Rocky Horror Picture Show. Uh, and that it that it then opens up a, a huge issue because you're talking about a film that has kind of been it continues to live as a result of being loaned out to repertory theaters and having midnight screenings and stuff like that. It was, it's a huge element uh, in the LGBTQ community. Like there's all kinds of things. And so you've got where Disney is in control of things. And there has been talk about this Disneyfication of 20th century Fox Disneyfication of some of, of the way that they are releasing films, the way that they are treating the properties that they own that is disturbing and it's it's going to continue to happen like i I've, i'm not saying that like oh there's anything that we can particularly do about this but i understand the concerns surrounding it yeah well and i i mean maybe there's not anything we can do but i think paying attention to what's happening and voicing our concerns and being aware of it i think that's all really important we can't just sit back and let it happen I mean, it's, it's not even fighting, really. It's just, we just need to be aware. And we need to support those indies. And we need to support other things. And it's like, okay, if Disney's not going to let my Frida Theater right over here screen certain Fox titles, fine. But I'm still going to support that theater by going to other stuff that they are allowed to screen. Yeah, you know? yeah. Yeah, that's true. All right, so, well, t- speaking of corporate hegemony and... <laughs> um, uh, <laughs> brands and kind of weird relationships with brands and stuff like that. <laughs> Flamin' Hot Cheetos. Cheetos, uh, the movie. <laughs> oh, wait. Which it's not. <laughs> so this was sort of interesting. So uh, this week it, it came out that um, Eva Longoria was going to direct Flamin' Hot, um, which is a film about Richard Montanez, who created the spicy Flamin' Hot Cheetos snack, and actually he was a he was a janitor at Cheetos, and then became um, became this like fantastic force and basically saved the company, right? And of course, this film. So this is this is very important. This is about a a Latinx entrepreneur who basically rescued this massive corporation that was dying at the time with spicy food uh and so that kind of relationship between latinx representation and representations of food and kind of drawing all that in together this is going to be directed by eva longoria who's a a latinx director latinx actress so all of this is really good stuff and it's it's actually really interesting it's information that i didn't i mean i don't know anything about brands and who created brands so i didn't know this about cheetos um of course the film is being pushed as and being advertised as the Cheetos movie. And that is the initial uh, headline from Deadline was exactly that, that this is Eva Longoria direct, to direct Cheetos movie, Flamin' Hot. Um, and I, you know, we kept on seeing people referring to it as the Cheetos movie. And, and just for me, and I think for a lot of people, one of the first responses that we had to this was, it's is this like the emoji movie? Like we're going to have anthropomorphized Cheeto snacks in a Cheeto universe, you know, is, is that what is, what's going to happen? And of course that's not what's going on at all. So it, it was an interesting moment of kind of the difference between brand recognition and actually what is going on. Um, 
because there's a major difference to me in advertising a film as the Cheetos movie and advertising a film as a movie about the man who created Flaming Hot Cheetos. Those are two different things. And so I, this dialogue kind of got weird and went to some sort of interesting places, people being like, well, I, I didn't get that at all. Um, but this happened at around the, this came out around the same time that the Edinburgh Institute uh, released another one of its studies. Yeah, the same day. And d- discussing the representations of, um, Lat- of the Latinx population in films and uh, representations both in terms of actors and actresses, but also in terms of uh, directors and producers and writers. And of course, it's no surprise. Most of the Annenberg Institute studies are not surprising. <laughs> they, no. they just kind of confirm what we already sort of thought, uh, but it's yeah. good to have the numbers. Basically confirm that um, despite a predominance in, in the population of the United States, the percentage of... Uh, Latinx creators and characters and actors and actresses is minuscule in comparison. Mm-hmm. Uh, so one of the things that they said was that the study found that among 1,200 popular films released between 2007 and 2018, 4.5% of more than 47,000 speaking or named roles went to Latinx actors, and only 3% were lead or co-leads. So that that's huge. That is a massive disparity. Of the 1,200 films examined, 4% were made by Latinx directors. And of those, 71% were from outside the United States and 29% were American. So you're getting a lack of representation of specifically Latinx American creators uh, in comparison with people from outside the United States. And so all of this is, it's interesting, all these relationships that are going on, all of this is coming at a time, obviously, when uh, we have all kinds of, of issues going on within the United States about um, the way that immigrants are treated, the way that, pri- that primarily Latinx immigrants are being treated uh, and put into concentration camps and stuff like that. And so meanwhile, you're saying that, okay, we're not, e- we don't have even remotely the amount of representation in film that we need. Uh, so this is an interesting issue. What did, what did you think about this, Karen? Oh, man. Yeah, that study, like you said, it was one of those things where it didn't tell us anything new, but it confirmed confirmed it yeah. for us and gave us some hard facts to actually say, well, look it, this is what's really happening. It's now it's now not just anecdotal. One thing, one thing I was actually just thinking about while you were reading that was just the fact that, you know, here in the United States, we, you know, everyone considers this country a melting pot it is it you know yeah. we we are the one of the only countries in the world where there's not a specific race or ethnicity attached to our citizens uh we you know we represent all kinds of people and everybody can be an american everybody looks like an american because americans are everybody and um and i was just was thinking about this in terms of actually what we were just talking about with disney and how so much of what I understand about other cultures and seeing representation on screen comes from watching international films. You know, I watch Mexican movies, I watch Saudi movies, I watch African movies. And so that's how I, that's how I see so many different people represented on screen. And to tie that into what I was just saying about Disney, it's like, it it reminds me because so many people base their entertainment and their opinions of entertainment and their ideas of what the film industry should look at, look like based on the American film industry. 
and Mm -hmm. but there's so much other good stuff that's happening out in the world and so many great things that are being done that are overlooked because they're not being promoted here so i that's that's just some of the things i was thinking about but this study specifically it's really this this is ridiculous it's ridiculous (laughs) that this is still happening We've been talking about representation and inclusivity and all these things for years, like my entire life. I remember when I was a kid and people would talk about the token black guy or, you know, oh, this this Latin character is here just for the comic relief or, of course, that guy has to be a gangbanger because he's Mexican or whatever, you know, like those kinds of things have been part of the conversation for as long as I can remember. And the fact that now we have hard numbers to prove that it has not changed since I was a child. And that was not just a couple years ago. And... It, it's just it's so disgusting and it's like we still see the the thing like all these studies come out about women directing films and and working behind the scenes in films and the needle doesn't move and it's like okay we keep seeing these numbers what is it going to take to change that to to start moving these things and so it was a little bit um it was a little bit frustrating that this study came out and then just a few hours later i mean the whole reason that i found out the cheetos movie was actually a pretty interesting sounding biopic was because someone was shaming people for just Mm -hmm. calling it the Cheetos movie. (laughs) I'm like, wait, it's not a Cheetos movie about Chester Cheetah? What is it then? And then I started looking at it. Because I don't read every single article I see the headline for. I'm sorry, I don't have that kind of time. And, uh, yeah, because this this person tweeted that uh, in shame, like, oh, I can't believe you were all falling all over yourselves uh, about the the way that lat, lat, Latinos are represented on screen, but then immediately, as soon as you find out about this Eva Longoria movie, you start making fun of it. And it's like, well, okay, but they needed to, to announce that a little bit more clearly, <laughs> you know? Well, and I actually think that this is a good point. And, and so a lot of the criticism centered around the fact that places like Deadline and Variety, et cetera, were advertising, were talking about it and putting it in the headline as the Cheetos movie, right? Which, I mean, that came from Deadline and Deadline sucks, but that's the point. (laughs) But I I do actually think that that's a good point, that things like Deadline or Variety or The Hollywood Reporter, some of the really big websites and publications do affect the way that we perceive things and words affect our perception. So we perceive something, and particularly in this culture where a lot of the time you do just look at the headline. Mm-hmm. Um, so our perception is immediately is like, oh, you know, my, my immediate reaction when I saw that headline before I actually clicked on the link and read the article, um, I was just like, oh God, that's really weird to hide, you know, oh, so, so this, this, this Latinx director finally gets the a, a major film, and it's the Cheetos movie. You know right, that yeah. that was the first reaction. Just like, oh, she gets to direct the Adventures of Chester the Cheetah. Of course, then looking into it, just like, oh, actually, this is much more interesting than what it looks like. But so that that kind of marrying of perception and representation and journalism and, and film journalism and the way that things are advertised and the way that things are are represented is again i i think that it also speaks to kind of the lack of diversity or the unwillingness to add diversity really within film within film criticism and within film journalism is that you know you, you better bet that 
Latinx people writing, a Latinx critic or, or a Latinx journalist writing that headline is going to write a different headline than a white guy. Mm-hmm. and Or a white girl, for that matter. And so that's why you need that multiplicity of perspective within not just smaller publications, not just kind of publications that are, quote, Latinx publications, but across the board. And that's a problem also. So it's it's this continued dominance, particularly of white men and to a lesser extent, white women. I mean, we're two white women talking about this. Um, really right across the board from everything from PR people to the way that things are advertised to who's being represented in film to who's writing about it. Uh, all of that stuff is important. And, and we need to really start interrogating who is writing these things and who is kind of forming these these perceptions yeah that's exactly right i was just looking and the the writer of the article was a woman but the thing is that so often they don't have any control over the headlines so who knows who's really responsible for this but um but yeah it's you're absolutely right the thing is that when you give people the power to form art art early early ideas about things and you end up with these kinds of things which it's like how is that not designed to give people an immediate negative perception of this movie and to just dismiss it out of hand yeah that feels like exactly what they were trying to do and we see that so often i mean wasn't it indie wire that just a couple weeks ago got in trouble because of um because of that headline about uh um, yeah, man, man hating. Uh, yeah, man hating lesbians. Yeah, yeah, and yeah. I mean, which sorry. wasn't at all. Which, no, I was just gonna say, which wasn't at all included in the content of the article. Like it was no. obviously something that someone who who wrote the he- the SEO headline had added, had put in, and and it's clickbait, right? I mean, that's really what it is. It's just like, ooh, this is gonna make me mad. I'm gonna click on it. And you know what? It worked. I clicked on it because I was like, this is bullshit right here. <laughs> I was like, I can't um, believe they fucking wrote that. And I clicked on it. And I was like, wait, because they didn't write that. <laughs> exactly. But but so and this whole th- and then it, it kind of becomes this cyclical reinforcement where you keep on writing those kinds of headlines. You keep on using those kinds of keywords and titles because it gets people's attention. Um so yeah, the Cheetos movie, you're just like, oh God, you know, that sounds horrible. And then you actually click on it and you're like, oh, actually, that sounds really interesting. Right. And um, and it's weird how certain people, when you point out to them, hey, this is, this is what my thoughts were and this is how my opinion was shaped when I saw it worded this way. And then other people just want to jump. Well, that's your fault for not knowing the whole history of <laughs> snacks and how they're made. Like... What? Yeah, yeah. I, I'm sorry. I do not know the origins of the vast majority of snack foods that no. I consume or don't consume. Actually, I don't particularly like Flaming Hot Cheetos because I'm a total wimp and I cannot eat hot food. I hate cheat. I hate Flaming Hot Cheetos. I like regular Cheetos. I hate Flaming <laughs> Hot because I don't like the taste of jalapeno. Sue me. Sorry. <laughs> but so I, yeah, I don't know. The only thing that I really know is that. Hydrox actually came before Oreo and Oreo stole their idea. Like, I do well, know that. Well, they stole their idea and made it better. So that's fine. <laughs> <laughs> actually, the best the best are Newman's O's. Uh, oh. I just want to put that out there. Like, it, it is true. It is a fact of life. Uh, <laughs> I have never had the pleasure. 
you have oh they're so good you have to try them like okay. they actually are really really good so this this uh citizen Dame episode has been sponsored by disney and <laughs> newman's own oreos <laughs> we love you paul newman uh anyway moving on all right uh i just all right i just want to bring this up really quickly because it's so fantastically stupid to my mind and maybe it won't be to someone else's maybe not to yours but it is to my richard linkletter is gonna yep, make it's stupid Okay, good. All right. <laughs> Move it on. Richard Linkletter is stupid. Um, yeah, Richard Richard Linkletter is going to be making a film version, a film adaptation of the Stephen Sondheim musical Merrily We Roll Along, and he is going to do the same goddamn thing that he did with Boyhood, and he's going to make it over the span of 20 years. Boyhood was actually done over the course of 12 years, so we're expanding things. Um and now he's he's cast. Uh, I know that he's cast Beanie Feldstein, and I was trying to look for the other Ben Platt. Ben Platt. Okay. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, I I I think that you know, Boyhood was an interesting experiment. I personally think it failed miserably because because half of the people who were in it were terrible fucking actors. Um, <laughs> Which you don't necessarily know when someone's five. <laughs> exactly. No, that kid when he was five was a much better actor than when he was 18. Like, I'm just going to mm-hmm. put that out there. Um, Even people so, who like Boyhood don't tend to disagree with that. Yeah, so I, I, I don't like Boyhood. I don't like Boyhood for other reasons. But it's an interesting experiment. It's an interesting idea to basically make a film almost quasi-documentary in the sense that you've got someone who's growing up and growing older um, uh, over the course of the, film, of the making of the film. I mean, Linklater has, does not have a great track record right now. Um, his last few films have not particularly done well. His, his latest film, Where'd You Go, Burn to Dead, has kind of been critically panned. Um, and as far as I know, has not done particularly well at the box office. I, I love Stephen Sondheim, but this just seems like a terrible fucking idea. It seems like a big ploy just to get attention. It's like one of the things that was a little bit charming about Boyhood. I don't hate that movie at all. I I don't love it, and I really don't think about it since it since it came out. I barely ever think about that movie except for when people bring it up. But uh, one of the things that I think made that interesting and made it such a fascination was the fact that nobody knew he was doing it. Just all of a sudden. Yeah. This movie's coming out that he's been working on for 12 years, and then it's like, well, wait, that's interesting. This is... I feel like he announced it to get attention, probably get some financing. Yeah. He's capturing a couple of stars that are uh, on the rise, but the thing is that you're going to do this over 20 years. So much can happen in 20 years. So it's like, to me, I'll be surprised if this movie ever actually does see the light of day. Just because, well, one of the things is, like, we're talking about how much the industry is changing. Look at how much films have changed just in the last two years, and especially since 2000. What are they going to look like in 20 years? Is this movie even going to be relevant? And they're using technology from today for something that they don't even know what the, what movies are going to, how movies are going to be shown, how they're going to be, you know, how are they going to be able to adapt to this along the way? There's so many factors. It really feels like this is just about attention. Yeah, that's what it feels like. Someone tweeted the other day and it was, it was horrible, but it was also a thought that I had had. It's just like, what, (laughs) what if someone dies? Uh Uh-huh. 
Like what you know? I mean, you don't, you like you say you don't know what ha- what's going to happen in twenty years. You don't know the careers of the people who are who are uh, sign on participate in this. What is going to happen? What if like God forbid something happens right. to someone in this film? Like how then do you deal with that? I I don't know. It's the thing is it seems it's all it almost feels like a social experiment. You know how is film going to change over the course of this? Uh, over the course of the making of this film, but it, it's I, I don't know I don't know why we should care to be totally honest. So yeah, uh, so yeah, I don't like Richard Linklater anyways. So if this means that we don't have to see another Richard Linklater film for twenty years, uh, that would be awesome. <laughs> but I don't believe that that's going to happen. Um, no, he'll still make movies in the meantime. <laughs> Moving on, speaking of someone who is still making movies and who we love a great deal, and I love him a great deal, but I have many questions. We have learned that Martin Scorsese's latest film, The Irishman, which uh, is going to have a limited theatrical release, but is actually a Netflix film, is going to be 210 minutes, and that is about three and a half hours long. So this is a three and a half hour movie about the mob and about an, an Irishman who's basically a hitman for the mob and may or may not have killed Jimmy Hoffa or knows where Jimmy Hoffa is buried, all of that stuff. It was interesting to see kind of the, the critical reaction to this when it came out because it sort of ran the gamut of, oh dear God, why? Uh all the way through to why are you complaining about this? This is Scorsese. This is a film that was cut by Thelma Schoonmaker. Um, this is De Niro and Keitel and Pesci and Pacino, and we should all be really, really excited about it. But one of the one of the things that this brought up for me, at least, and why I wanted to talk about it a little bit was um, the fact that this is this is a film that kind of occupies an interesting space because it is a Netflix film is going to be seen mm-hmm. primarily via streaming. Uh, and it's going to have a limited theatrical run. It is going to be shown at the New York Film Festival and in a couple of other places. But the majority of people who, who see this film are going to see it via streaming in their own homes. Uh, and one of the interesting things that it brings up is we are far more willing, I think, to engage with a film that is that long if we know that we can pause it, stop it, walk away from it, come back to it, watch it over the course of several days, etc. And it's it's an odd kind it's an odd kind of position that it occupies because it's going to have a theatrical release, because it's not technically it's it's not a limited series or anything like that. It's not like it's uh, split up into episodes. It is a film. But we're going. But the majority of people who see it are going to engage with it very differently than the people who go to see it or are able to see it in theaters. So this this kind of you know we've t- we talked a lot about streaming on this podcast. We talked a lot about the way that um, that streaming is kind of changing the way that we watch films, and that streaming is in itself its own medium. And people talk about binge watching. So we'll sit down and we will watch five, six, seven episodes of a television show in one day. So we're willing to sit down and watch, you know, a TV show for six hours, but we also kind of balk at the idea of a three and a half hour film. I personally, I have very mixed feelings about this. I do, just as a fan and as a critic, I do trust Scorsese. I think that he understands medium in a, in a very intimate way. 
And I think that he's aware of the fact that most people, whether or not he wants it, most people are going to be watching this film via streaming. And I, I want to think and I hope that he's taken that into account in terms of in terms of the arc and in terms of in terms of people's attention spans um, for something that is this epic, that is this massive. But so what are what are your feelings about this, Karen? I think that you have you had a slightly different reaction than I did. It's funny because I trust Scorsese to a very large extent. I do think some of his movies are a little bit too long. Um, but, but I, I'm not going to just blindly say, oh, three and a half hours, no movie should be three and a half hours. Like if it's three and a half hours long, I'm sure there's a good reason for it. And my initial (laughs) complaint was just put in a fricking intermission. That's not too much to ask. They used to do it all the time. And (laughs) it was interesting to see. Some of the people that were telling me, like, no, just wait and watch it at home. Like, oh, okay, where I'm going to give myself an intermission. Oh, my gosh. You know, it's this weird, like, bragging rights that people have. Like, I sat through a three and a half hour movie in one sitting. You know what? Fuck you. I sit on Saturdays for three and a half hours recording podcasts. I can do it. I sit at my desk at work for hours every day. Like I can do that. It just, I don't necessarily want to, you know, (laughs) we're all, we're a nation that's getting fatter and we have to worry about blood clots. And so we need to get up and move around and it's not (laughs) responsible to make us stay in one spot for three and a half hours. Even if I do have a recliner at the AMC, thank you very much. But (laughs) Uh, This episode also brought to you by AMC. Not really, but give us your money. But the other thing, too, is just... I I do agree with you, what you're saying about Martin Scorsese. He's not an idiot. He is one that doesn't fight the trends. I mean, he signed a huge deal with Netflix as soon as they offered him one. And so he knows this is the future and i'm sure that this movie is made with the idea in mind that most people like you said are not watching this in a theater they're watching this in their homes and so i i don't know i i i i'm fine with the runtime i don't like the discourse surrounding runtimes in general and how people either think that they're the worst thing ever or you know ridiculous or you know, you suck if you can't hack it. One other thing that really frustrated me was when someone who I will not name and shame was talking about like, oh, it's so dumb that critics are complaining about the run times of movies. Like you have anything else to do besides watch movies. I'm like, you know what? Fuck you, elitist bullshit. Like <laughs> most of us have other jobs. So yes, we yeah. do have other things to do besides watch movies. No, it, no, exactly. And, uh, and you know, a number of people brought up the fact that there are a lot of, particularly from the, the classical period, um, films that ran three hours, three and a half hours, even up to four hours. One of the things that I did find a little funny, and I, I love the person who said this, and so I don't think that, I don't think this is no reflection on him, but someone mentioned Cleopatra, <laughs> which is notorious for being one of the films that caused the final collapse of the studio system. <laughs> so, yeah, I'm not certain if Cleopatra is a great example of, like, people being willing to put up with a four-hour film given that it it, <laughs> it, um, it almost destroyed Hollywood. <laughs> right. <laughs> um, but there are other films like Lawrence of Arabia. Which uh, I'm seeing tomorrow. Which is an awesome film. Dr. Zhivago, yeah. Spartacus, Sound of Music. I don't think people always 
remember that Sound of Music is a massively long film. Mm-hmm. Um, but as you're saying, they all have intermissions, and they're all structured to have intermissions. Right. So that you have, you know, you kind of finish with part of an arc, and you have the intermission in the middle. Everybody gets up and moves around. You know, you go to the bathroom, you go get a drink, you go get food, whatever. And and then you come back and you watch the rest of the film. And there's nothing wrong with that. But we, we don't seem to be trending to that with these longer and longer films. Um, well, when and, I was and, in India a couple years ago, we went to a movie there. And it was a Bollywood movie, a comedy. It was like almost a two-hour movie. They had an intermission. Well, and there you have... You have people that are used to that, that are used mm-hmm. to sometimes having four or five, six hour films. Right. Uh, and so it's it's a completely different culture that is surrounding the watching of movies. People talk about that, about Bollywood films all the time, that there is more of a, it's almost like the way that it was um, in the United States during the silent era and even into the sound era when people would go there and you would hang out with your family and you would talk and you would eat and you would, you know argue with people you get into fights you know, all of that stuff it's it's this it's a communal experience versus just sitting there in the dark watching a movie which is the way that films have developed in the united states now exactly. uh, but it's it's interesting because that does actually overlap with streaming because with streaming you can do that you could sit down with your friends and eat and talk and pause and fast forward and rewind and experience sometimes very long sections of cinema, uh, but in a completely different environment than, than if you're sitting in a movie theater. And I, I do, th- I'm beginning to wonder if that's the direction that this kind of a film is going in, is in recognizing that and being like, okay, well, we're going we're gonna to give you an experience, basically, and an experience that you're meant to have in your home with your family and with other people versus one that you're meant to have in the dark and in silence of a movie theater. Uh, yeah. I don't know, it's, it's interesting. It is. it is. I find, I actually find the, the shifts in medium really exciting. Like, I think that this is, I think film is going in a very interesting direction right now and I'm excited to see what else happens. Yeah, I am too. I, I think my issue with this and with most other things these days is not so much the film itself or what's happening with the film it's the conversation around it by people who haven't even seen it yet (laughs) speaking of (laughs) conversations around films so i'm gonna kind of fold two things together here uh because we did actually get a very involved question that i'm going to shrink down just a little bit because it's it's a long question um but it's an important one i think and this is from eduardo a gigante um at a uh, E.A. Gigante on Twitter. And he says, my question is regarding flawed movies and when to engage in a discussion or not about them. How can you tell if a movie should be criticized for its lack of something or if it should be shrugged off even though it has flaws? And the example that he uses is 500 Days of Summer, which has been you know, notoriously discussed as being like, this is actually a film about um, uh, toxic masculinity and about sort of male entitlement and it's been treated as this uh, this modern romance, and then in fact sold itself as a as a modern romance. And what he's saying is, um, what if the movie had openly acknowledged that it was a selfish male perspective, or at least not pretended that it was woke? Uh, it would still be just as flawed, but I think it would have suffered less criticism. And this is, I think, very interesting 
in in regards to uh, to the to a new film that we were just talking about, uh, and that is also related to Scorsese, so everything fits together. <laughs> um, Joker with Joaquin Phoenix, which is now being shown at Venice, and I think it's going to be at TIFF, and it's kind of going to make the rounds and then actually be released. And one of the reactions that a lot of people had, and that I personally had to the trailers, was that this looks like MRA the movie. Um, this looks like, you know, a movie about a, an angry white man who is sees himself as being horribly treated by society, and particularly by women, and in the latest trailer, particularly by women of color, uh, and reacts in violence and anger against that. And this film, the trailer at least so far, has been compared with uh, several of Scorsese's films, including King of Comedy and uh, Taxi Driver, which is another film that has been interpreted in a variety of ways over the years. Easy <laughs> uh, way to say that, yes. In in terms of its views of toxic masculinity, and I, I do think it is a very overtly critical film of about toxic masculinity and about male violence and delusion. Um, but it has been, sometimes it has been used as this, this view of, you know, kind of the downtrodden white man who's angry at the world and eventually reacts in violence, believing that he is going to be its savior. Um, so all of this stuff kind of, kind of connects. So where I, I think the part of the question is how overt does a film have to be? in order to be interpreted this way and you know where does art where does art have a responsibility uh in the way that it represents itself and in in um the kinds of characterizations and the kinds of concepts that it is introducing to society and how how obviously does it have to be like uh you know this is, this is a critique versus this is actually supporting you know male entitlement or toxic masculinity yeah this is a really good question i i was pretty excited when i read it because i think that this is this does tap into things that we've had a lot of conversations about um, it's interesting because with the joker specifically and yes i have not seen the movie so i don't know exactly how they handle the subject matter but I saw that trailer this week and I did see immediately the comparisons to Taxi Driver and The King of Comedy. King of Comedy is actually my favorite Scorsese film, but uh, I just, it, it was interesting to me because I think both of those two films are very clear about, regardless of how people have chosen to interpret them after the fact, but they, to me, are very clear in showing that this is not okay, that these actions are not okay. Travis mm -hmm. Bickle is not a sympathetic person. And he's actually a very bad person who's deeply disturbed and does a lot of really terrible shit. And I don't trust Todd Phillips to handle it with that much uh, consideration. And But more importantly, <laughs> I don't trust a lot of the audience to interpret it that way, given the fact that so many people think that Travis Bickle is this weird anti-hero and, mm -hmm. uh, and that he's someone to admire because, hey, yeah, he was crazy, but he was just trying to do good in the world. It's like, no, no, that's not... No, but we can't. 
Um, <laughs> one of the things, though, that I find interesting is those movies came out in the early 80s. Those are very old movies yeah. of a world that was very different than the one that we live in now. And one of my problems with Joker and with some other... Even the, the Suicide Squad version of Joker that, you know, people have very interesting reactions to, you know, and all these other types of, I mean, I've seen weird shit about uh, Javier Bardem's character in No Country for Old Men. Like, people just have <laughs> these weird ideas about those characters that are clearly evil, that are clearly bad. Yeah. And and making all these excuses for that behavior. And so I don't know where I don't know where the filmmaker's responsibility is, but I do know that I'm looking at a world where we've had how many mass shootings by mm -hmm. white dudes who everyone says, Oh well they're crazy, oh well they have this problem or they have that problem. Like you're talking about Travis Bickle here. You're talking yeah. about Joker. You're talking about these people but in these movies, you're celebrating that. And so it's like, to me, it seems like the filmmakers at least do share some responsibility in in being aware of the world that we're living in now, the things that are happening on the news, the things that are happening in the world all the time, and not giving the audience any excuse to accept that behavior or to dismiss it or to disregard it. Yeah, I I absolutely agree with you. I I think that, and that this is this is always a difficult topic because you begin to then make the argument about like, okay, where do we draw the line in terms of where art is, needs to be responsible and and should be responsible for itself? And obviously, art at some level is always open to interpretation. That's one of the fun things about it. But that's also one of the bad things about it. It's very hard to say like you know particularly with stories like this, with stories like Taxi Driver, or it looks like with stories like Joker, um, that, you know, how do we view these characters and who interprets them and how do they interpret them? And of course, at a certain point, crazy people will use any justification for their own craziness. I think Joker is a particularly um, complicated issue because obviously one of the major mass shootings in recent years was a guy who dressed up as Joker mm -hmm. and viewed himself as kind of, it, it was very Travis Bickle, viewed himself as kind of, I, I'm going to, I'm going to take out the scum, basically. And of course, very often the people that um, view other people as scum view women and people of color and uh, gay people as scum. And one of the, the, the major issues that I had in watching the second trailer of The Joker is that a lot of the people that kind of treat um, him badly are black women. Mm -hmm. That automatically raises red flags where you're like, and, and who the hell knows how the film is actually going to deal with this. But if you're representing your protagonist, you know, whether or not he is quote, a, a good guy or not, um, when you're representing your protagonist as being in some sense victimized by black women, I mean, I don't know if I should ha even have to say why that's a problem. I feel no. like we should know why that's a problem. Mm -hmm. um, and and I, I said this earlier today on Twitter, I think that there are a lot of 
white male critics who are responding to this and are like, oh, I'm a little bit bothered by this, but I don't know, I'm going to wait and see. I've seen a lot more intense responses from women in particular and from people of color in particular who are going like, no, this is bad. This is not good, you know, and and I do think that that's where art does have a responsibility. It has a responsibility to read the culture and to consider what kind of story it needs to be told at this time. Do we really need the story of a disaffected white man who loses his shit? Um, I don't think we do. Whether or not a Twitter it can... account and lives in the White House. I mean, <laughs> <laughs> no, exactly, exactly. I don't think that we need that. These men like that have plenty of representation on screen and they have there there's plenty of, of stuff of information that is surrounding them and we we don't need to start interrogating the, those kinds of characterizations right now i i think it's actually very dangerous so yeah so i i do think with um in terms of eduardo's question you know if if a movie should be criticized for its lack of something or if it should be shrugged off. I don't, I think that it should be criticized. I think that something like 500 days of summer should be criticized, even though you can interpret it as kind of an indictment of male entitlement, it doesn't come off like that. And I, and I don't think it communicates that well enough in, in its, um, in the body, in its text for it, uh, for it to be, forgiven for failing to do that if that's what it's about it needed to telegraph that more well and it's funny because to me that is how i interpret it i see it as which as you're watching it you see him as this sympathetic guy but by the time you get to the end you see really what was going on for me it was pretty clear but i also understand why it's not like why there are other interpretations and why you can mm -hmm. see it a lot of different ways and I think for that, yeah, it's worth talking about, but I don't think it's necessarily the filmmaker, like, not being, not taking care with his story. I think it's just, you know, it's a, it's a good topic of conversation. Something like Joker, I think, I, I think this is something where it is a valuable conversation to have even without having seen the movie even before the movie comes out just because this is a well-known character yes I understand that this movie is giving us a different perspective and a whole new story about him that has like never been done but I think that just given the context of like you said um, given the context of when this is coming and and all the things that are happening now I think that it's I think that it's worth talking about Todd Phillips and his intentions and why did he feel like he needed to tell this story and why is he using the characters that he does to tell it and those are questions that I think will we'll go into the theater with those questions when we see it something like 500 days of summer you don't necessarily know what those questions are going to be until you watch the movie so I think that these conversations yeah. are all valuable. And I think it's what's most clear, especially with the Joker coming out. Sorry, Joker, not the <laughs> Joker. Totally different movie. Uh, <laughs> but I think what's very clear is that obviously we just need more women and people of color directing movies and less white men. Yeah, I would be, I would be much more willing to go along with this film if it was a woman directing. I, I absolutely, or, you know, honestly, if it was someone like Scorsese directing, uh, yeah. I would have more trust in what it was actually trying to do versus, versus Todd Phillips. But 
Uh, well, one of the other things, too, just throwing this out here, is it was really funny watching some of the people that were trying to, that thought that they were convincing people they were being original with their whole, wow, Joker looks <laughs> like Taxi Driver plus King of Comedy, and clearly had not seen at least one of those movies. Like, <laughs> you're not fooling anybody. <laughs> this is not a verbal subtweet, we promise. No, <laughs> I would never. <laughs> It's like, you know who you are. <laughs> yep. And you're definitely Everybody knows listening me. right now. Yeah. <laughs> um, all right. Well, let's, let's move on to reviews. I don't want to talk about the other trailer because it's stupid. Um, it is stupid. I agree. Let's talk about movies that are good. <laughs> so let's move on to reviews. I, I just want to give a quick shout out to both Karen and Kim, who succeeded in totally talking around Ready or Not. <laughs> Um, last time we recorded, I have finally seen the film. Yes, it is a great film. I fucking loved it. Uh, go see it if you haven't seen it already. Loads of fun. Um, the thing that happens. Yeah, I totally liked that. <laughs> I knew you would. I was like, oh, so many movies now I watch them and you're like kind of this like presence in the back of my head where I'm like how is Lauren gonna feel about this movie it's like good I I, I hope to be that ubiquitous and everyone that I run into um, there are times where I'm like I really wish she was here so I could just see her face even though I've never actually seen you face to face I just imagine what it would be like it's yeah. like oh Lauren would hate this or oh Lauren's uh-huh. gonna love this good Lauren good. would be gleefully just gritting and yep <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, I, I enjoyed the crap out of Ready or Not. Um, my full review is up on the Citizen Dame website. Please go and read it. Uh, yeah, and go see the movie. It's fantastic. Karen, you got to see It Chapter 2, which I am so incredibly jealous of because I'm really looking forward to this movie. So uh, what did Uh-oh. you think? Is it the greatest horror film ever made? Uh, No. It's only Damn. almost the greatest horror film ever made. So <laughs> no hyperbolic quote on the poster for me. Bummer. <laughs> no, it's funny because I went into this. I mean, I obviously we all here loved the first movie with the kids. Uh, it was some really great, great filmmaking, really interesting story. And so this had a lot to live up to. And a few people saw they had a screening that I didn't get to go to, but so I had seen some reactions already. I'd heard some thoughts from people that were saying that it chapter two was terrible. It doesn't stick the landing. It's just like they had such a perfect setup and then they just let it go. And so I was just like, uh, I kind of feel like I'm still going to really like this, even though all these people are saying it's bad. And then I started seeing a little bit more, mixed reactions of other people saying no I loved it it's great so then I was just like all right well good I can go in just just and enjoy it for what it is and so I went to the screening the other day and uh, first of all I got to listen to two people behind me talking about how horror movies are terrible and I'm like why are you here and then also (laughs) like why do we need the press like really why are you here go away (laughs) but so I went into it like Oh, I wish Pennywise would just come out of the screen and get you both, but whatever. Uh, no, so this movie, it's this picks up because, of course, the book is very, very long. And mm-hmm. it. Have you read the book? Uh, I've read, yes, I've read part of the book. Okay. <laughs> I, I gave up on it partway through. 
Okay, yeah, I mean, it's freaking long, and it's really weird, and there's a lot of just crazy shit that goes down. And so, of course, the the TV movie that was on in 1990, it played out the story very much like the book does, where it mixes, it goes back and forth between them as adults and them as children. Yeah. And so I wasn't totally sure. I knew that they were going to bring the kids back. I mean, they're such... Like, they're such great actors, and they're such, like, they've had such great couple of years that you gotta bring them back into it. So I wasn't sure how they were gonna do that, because the first movie entirely focused on them as children. Yeah. But this, and this does go back and forth, but it does keep the focus mostly on them as adults. Now, the adult storyline in the book, the adult storyline in the TV movie, that was always the least interesting part of the story. This is a this is a tale that is about kids, and the kids are really interesting. And what happened to them as kids is really interesting, especially if you cut out that whole weird orgy thing. But <laughs> and that's where I stopped. <laughs> yeah, I can understand why. But uh, but yeah, this is them as adults. They don't remember anything that happened to them. They don't even remember knowing each other. And they and also there's a line where I think it's Bill Hader says, "I don't even remember forgetting," and that's what this movie is. It's them learn like relearning, like getting to know each other once again and all their memories start to come back once they're reunited in this town. And it's I thought it was really well done. It's of course that story is not as interesting, but I think that it was still constructed in such a great way and the way that they show them remembering without rehashing the first movie because that was one of the things I was afraid of. I'm like, they already showed what happened to them as kids. How are they going to bring that back in without just making it feel like they're just showing a highlight reel from the first film? And they didn't. What they did, there's, there's some stuff that happened with each of those kids during the time that it was attacking the first time. There's stuff that just they never showed in the original movie like things that happened with Eddie and you know different scares that they had and different experiences that they had with it that had just kind of been left out well they bring those back in in this movie in a really good way so you're getting even a broader idea of what the kids experiences were that we didn't already see and I really liked that I do think some of the effects were cheesy and felt unfinished which was weird um, but the performances are good, especially Bill Hader and James Ranson. They were so great. They play mm-hmm. the adult versions of Finn Wolfhard and James uh, Jack Dylan Grazier. And they were really good. Jessica Chastain is good because she just always is. Uh, James McAvoy was weirdly like the least interesting and the most subdued <laughs> person in the whole thing. <laughs> um Isaiah Mustafa is good, and I was really glad they didn't go a direction I had heard they were going to go with Mike. I still don't love the way that that character is written, and that I blame Stephen King for, but I had heard that they were going to be like, oh, Mike is the one that leaves, and Ben stays behind, and Mike goes off and has, like, this heroin problem. They didn't do that. They they kept that pretty, they kept his storyline pretty true to the book, so if you're worried about that, don't. Um, Oh, good, yeah, because... yeah. The original film made me a little uncomfortable. Yeah. Yeah, I, I'd heard right. that. Yeah, no, they, they they do kind of fix that timeline a little bit. So, and so where the characters are in their lives, they stay true to the book. Um, there are some weird things that they left out, like um, when you catch up with with um, Beverly, 
uh, Jessica Chastain, when you catch up with her, she's married. Her husband is not a good guy. In the book, he comes trying to find her in Derry. He's, like, trying to get her to come back home. And they completely, like, once she once she leaves to go back to Derry, like, you never see him again. It's weird. So, like, there's just certain things that they just cut out for reasons I couldn't really understand. And other pieces that I didn't think were developed that well. But it's interesting and I think that they did do a good job of making this a good second part to the first movie so I really liked it not the best horror movie I've seen not the best horror movie even of the year but still really fun really good revisiting of the story and great performances so there you go and I will have a full review on Friday Sweet. I, I am actually really excited to see I, I love the first film, and uh, it just seems like it's a good kind of summer horror film, and mm-hmm. I, was, I was really looking forward to this one. I do have a, I do have a question. I okay. think the ending to the miniseries is fantastically stupid, mm-hmm. uh, and I believe it's the way the book also ends, kind of the, the explanation, as it were. Is it the same explanation? Mostly. Okay. <laughs> they do make a couple of changes, but mostly, yeah, it's okay. it's pretty much the same. Yeah, I yeah, I it, it was. It's one of those stories where I was like, oh, this is kind of like it's sort of like H.P. Lovecraft. If you've ever read anything by him, where it's all really frightening up until the point you actually see the monster, and then it's like, well, that's <laughs> dumb, right? And it's like, oh, yeah. it's a gelatinous blob. Oh no! <laughs> like, yeah, they do alter the look of the monster a little bit, but it's still the same idea. It, it actually, it it looked less cheesy than this, but it reminded me a little bit of the big, um, the big scene, like the big climax scene in um, Beetlejuice. <laughs> <laughs> oh no! Oh dear. But less, but much less cartoony. Okay. So, but just the way things are happening and the way things are moving, it's like, oh, this kind of reminds me of Beetlejuice a little bit. You'll, oh dear! When you see it, you'll understand what I mean. Oh dear. Okay. Yeah. Well, all right. So, so I'm looking forward to it, regardless. Dude, yeah. yeah. Uh, so I think that that's going to close us out. Do you have anything on on the dock for this week? Oh man, what am I doing this week? Uh, I'm going to check out Frozen Two. Like, I'm not seeing the movie yet, but they're they're doing a whole interesting press day for that, so I'm really excited. And I think that's about it. I'm gonna go see Lawrence of Arabia just on my own for fun, and The Matrix 20th Anniversary, Woo, directed direct- by women. <laughs> directed by two women. I yep. this was a major topic of debate last <laughs> night. I didn't realize that it was that difficult to understand, but here we are. Uh, <laughs> Who knew? So, so I think that that's going to close this out. I don't have anything coming up this week. I've got a couple of of screeners that I have to get to. New York Film Festival screenings are going to start in a couple of weeks, so I'm getting prepared for that, um, which I am looking forward to, and we'll be reporting on for Citizen Dame. Yay! Yay! So that's going to close us out. Thank you so much to everyone for listening. Of course, you can always follow us in a multitude of ways. You can download the podcast from Podbean at uh, citizendame.podbean.com. We're also on iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher Radio. We did have we do have a YouTube channel, I think, although I we haven't been really been doing anything with that. <laughs> um, 
We are also, of course, always on Twitter at Citizen Dame Pod. We are also on Facebook at facebook.com slash citizen dame. You can email us. Um, that's at citizendamepod at gmail.com. Ask us questions. Give us feedback. If you're an asshole, we will just delete you, literally and figuratively. And probably shame you on an episode. <laughs> uh, our <laughs> website is, is of course... <laughs> Our website is, of course, uh, citizendamepod.com. And, of course, if you want to give us your money, we love money because it keeps us going. Uh, you can subscribe to our Patreon at patreon.com slash citizendame, and you also get fun stuff if you do that. If you would rather just give us a little bit of your cash and you don't really feel like making a commitment right now, we do have a Ko-Fi. That's co-fi.com uh, backslash citizendame. And we still have a Zazzle store. I actually have one of our t-shirts. It's a cute t-shirt, so give us a shot. Uh, that's zazzle.com slash citizen dame. And of course, we are always on our individual Twitters where I am calling men all kinds of names. And Karen is a little more, more circumspect, but still calling men <laughs> names. So where are, you, where are you at, Karen? <laughs> I am at Karen M. Peterson. And I am at LH Business. So that's it for us. We'll talk to you next week. Bye. Whenever the Ludomasses are presented with a new addition to the family, we place a blank playing card into the box. Our initiate then has the privilege of drawing the card, and Mr. LeBail will tell us which game to play. I got chess. I got old maid. Seriously, what the fuck is old maid? Fitch. <laughs> so I just take out the card? My dear, it is your turn. What does it say, girl? <laughs> it says hide and seek. Are we really going to play that? Everything okay? <laughs>